and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, May 17th, 2020. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Also with us this morning is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is the founder and editor of castomreviews.com, and he is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Just a little note for everybody out there. We had some technical difficulties this morning, and Michael and Peter are actually joining by telephone, so we don't have the normal lush tones of Portantier and Felicia. But we'll get that sorted out for next week. Um, so in, this, uh, in the last seven days, we found out the sad news that Jerry Stiller had passed away. And Michael, he uh, showed up in this book about the public theater that you've been reading. Ah, yes. Yeah. Yeah, this book is so amazing. I've mentioned it several times in recent podcasts. And when I read of uh, Jerry's passing, I th- this story just leapt back into my mind because I, I first read it not long ago. And I thought I would share it because this is, just, well, let me read it and, and, and you can make your own judgment. This is, he's writing about his uh, participation in the um, public theater presentations in the, as part of its mobile unit uh, around the city and in Central Park before the Delacorte. So this is the late 50s we're talking about. And he wrote, he had done Romeo and Juliet there, but then he writes this, uh, or actually, I'm sorry, this was part of an oral interview, you know, or an interview that was done by Kenneth Turin. Uh, so he didn't actually write it, but he spoke this to Kenneth Turin, and this is an amazing story. He says, after Romeo and Juliet, I said to Joe, I don't think I can hang in here unless I get Anne into the next play his wife, Ann Mara. Joe understood the, econ- the economics of life, and he hired Anne to play Julia in Two Gentlemen of Verona, while I was hired to play Launce. So now we had two salaries for the first time. About eight or nine days before we were supposed to open, they couldn't find a dog to play the part of Crab, Launce's dog. At one point, Ed Sharon, who was a friend of mine and just trying to help out, said, let me play the dog. I'd love to play the dog. <laughs> no, no, I said. <laughs> Wait, it gets better. <laughs> no, no, I said. We want a real dog, Ed. <laughs> so John, Ro- so John Robertson, who was doing a lot of technical work, went down to the ASPCA and brought back a collie. All wrong. A beautiful dog, very frisky with that kind of Irish setter type thing. But all wrong. This, I said to myself, is not a Shakespearean mutt. Everyone was saying to me, take the dog. Once once he goes back to the pound, you know this dog is not going to make it. You'll save a dog's life. I looked at the dog again. We tried to like each other. The dog licked me. I licked the dog. Nothing. <laughs> I had great guilt, but I said, what are we going to do with this dog? This dog ain't right. It'll ruin the show. Then came one of those things that just happened, serendipity, whatever you want to call it. We were rehearsing under the Brooklyn Bridge, and a dog walks up. 
terribly emaciated. Oh. You could see the bones on the ribs. Oh. It it looked like it might once have been a Dalmatian, white and gray and dirty. It had one eye and that blinked constantly, and that Myron Cohen hangdog look to it. Myron Cohen was a comedian at the time. Um, I looked at this dog, and I knew immediately that this was the dog. They're going to break up, I said, meaning the audience. We'll fatten him up maybe a little bit so the people don't take, take pity on him, but they'll never stop laughing at this dog. We brought it backstage, and I started to relate to the dog as an actor would, not because I loved the dog, but because I had to know him quick. We had to get to know him quickly. We were going on soon. I said to Anne, I'm going to have to live with this dog for eight days. I got a rubber inner tube, put a little blanket over it and made a little bed for him right in front of our bed. Then I cleaned him and washed him and brought him in. What happened was he would go, <laughs> we would go to bed after rehearsals and the dog would jump into bed with us. He'd separate us. And Anne said, get him out of here. I can't get him out of here. I said, I've got to work with this dog. He's going to be on stage with me and I've got to somehow or other get related to this dog. Now, part of her was saying he's nuts. He's crazy. He's Meshuga. And the other part said, we're actors. He's right. In addition to that, the dog wouldn't eat ordinary food. I could see why his ribs were like that. He couldn't eat scraps or anything like that. So I started cooking him chicken necks. <laughs> I'd spice them a little bit, smelled good. I fed him the chicken necks, hoping that he would learn to love me, love this guy, whatever. The long and short of it was that we went on stage, and when that audience saw that dog, you couldn't get the first line out. The people <laughs> love that dog. The people love that dog because he paid no attention to anything I said. He wasn't distracted. <laughs> He wasn't doing numbers. He wasn't doing anything. He just stood there, and every line was a laugh. I would take the dog home at night, and people would say to me, by that dog, thou shalt be known. I loved this dog. <laughs> and then just his little follow-up is they had an article about the dog in Theater Arts Magazine. He was on a CBS show called Eye on New York. They never talked about me. They talk completely about this dog. <laughs> Once a guy came up to me at a party and said, I'm with Chock Full of Nuts. I'm president of the company. And because of the dog and you, I'm giving the Shakespeare Festival $25,000. Wow. I never felt so good in my life. I couldn't pay the rent that month, of course. But I went over, had another piece of pie and said, gee, I feel good. When the show was over, we had a dog in our life and I didn't know what to do. I couldn't send the dog on the street again. Couldn't do it. I couldn't possibly give him to the ASPCA. They would probably kill him. This dog is like a human being, I said. He got laughs. But if we were going to keep the dog, I had to keep get his eye fixed up. I couldn't look at this dog every morning with the eye blinking like that. He had to have an operation, which they said he might not survive wow. because it turned out he, he had a heart condition, too. Oh I'll take God. a chance with the heart, I said. The eye alone is going to cost you $500, they said. $500? I'm an actor. I'm broke. I'm not even working. I'm not doing anything. Okay, $50. Wow. <laughs> so, so Crab was fixed up for $50. He survived the heart thing and everything else. He lived with us for seven years after the play ended, and he was not an easy dog. 
<laughs> so that's the story. And it's that's the kind of story that would not, you know, be on the record if it wasn't for books like this that, that do oral histories and talk sure. with people like Jerry Stiller, who is now no longer with us to tell the story. Yeah, I have to say that my experiences with both Stiller and Mirror were sensational, not just because mm. I interviewed them once and they were wonderful, but not once. Not twice, not three times, but four times over the years, I would walk into a restaurant and there they'd be and immediately they'd say, Peter. I mean, it was amazing <laughs> to me. It's one thing, you know, for them to uh, say to their press agent, OK, I'm being interviewed. What's the guy's name? That wasn't happening. This was, These were restaurants. Uh, and um, I was just so impressed by that. And another story uh, that I love is the fact that when I was at the Star Ledger, my editor was insistent that we put people's ages in each feature story. And I got into a lot of trouble with that. Well, actors called up and said, you can't give my age. I mean, people think I'm younger than I am. I'm not going to get parts. And I understand that. You know, I really do. And what I used to do was not put it in and then hope that I'd get away with it. So my editor wouldn't notice. And mm. I'd say about mm, half the time she didn't and half the time she did. So anyway, fan mirror, she did. And I put in her age. And Ann Mira really made a point of the fact that I got it wrong by sending me a photostat of her driver's license. <laughs> <laughs> and it was so funny to see, you know, you know, like a passport photo, the picture on your license where you don't look glamorous. I mean, you look, I never saw her look uh, so matter of fact and dull as she did on that license photo. So, uh, so, and I always remember September 20th, every time it rolls around that that's her birthday because of that license. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's wonderful. Lovely people. I have a tangential story about a dog uh, on Broadway. Uh, a friend of mine. Oh. A friend of mine was in uh, Showboat, the, re the revival that was in the nineties, uh, <laughs> and uh, and he was in rehearsal. And they had that that one montage scene where the dog walked across the stage. Uh, and, okay. and a friend of mine had his dog at rehearsal and Stroman threw it into this montage and, <laughs> and the dog ended up in the show and, you know, six months into the show or something like that, uh, when contracts came up for renewal, the dog got a bigger <laughs> raise than my friend did. And oh, so, <laughs> no. uh. <laughs> it worked out that well, he lived on the Upper West Side and he was at the Gershwin and the dog, as part of the contract, the dog gets car service to and from the theater. And so my friend wow. who was in the ensemble was riding back and forth and somebody in the cast uh, was complaining that a, a chorus boy got a car service and she wanted car service and she called up Hal's office. And so he was told that he couldn't, uh, he couldn't um, take the car service anymore. So he had to get out of the theater, run uptown to meet the car service, to pick up the dog after the show. <laughs> oh, Lane stretch. So anyway, <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> did I say that word out loud? I, inside voice, yeah, James. Yeah, inside voice. It, it flipped out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I bet you can't imagine that that would have ever happened. So um, we got a little bit of feedback on last week's show, the uh, our Mother's Day show. We talk about iconic mothers on stage. And uh, one of our listeners, John Watson in, in uh, California, uh, suggested that 
um, he wanted uh, Edna Turnblad uh, and and uh, Far- Harvey Farstein's oh, yeah. Edna Turnblad, and uh, great choice, yeah, and Zoe Wanamaker as Bessie Berger in the Awaken Sing revival in two thousand six. Uh, yeah. Also, uh, our good friend Carl Lockhart also uh, made a laundry list, uh, a, a "We Didn't Start the Fire" type of list. Uh, Kim and Miss <laughs> Kim and Miss Saigon, uh, Abigail Adams, Goldie, the mom and a big who sings "Stop Time," all of the moms and baby. We miss the baby. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think yeah. I think I, I think I mentioned baby. Did you? Um, I think I mentioned I think I mentioned Beth Fowler. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, you but, did. That's right. Yeah. That's um, right. And the thing yeah, is, because, um, yeah. And I think I mentioned that uh, Liz had the baby at the end. Uh, yeah. The Liz Calloway character. I think I mentioned that. But you know, I I really um, uh, take issue with Abigail Adams um, in the sense <laughs> that she only makes a passing reference to um, Quincy um, and the other kid too. Um, so, I mean, we, we only hear about them. It's not like we see her doing yeah. something. I mean, the famous thing in, in shows, um, in any playwriting is show, don't tell. And what she's doing there is telling. She, we don't see anything that uh, she's a great mother. And I'm sure she was. Don't misunderstand me. But the thing is, um, I can understand why that didn't come to my mind, at least, um, under those circumstances. But I won't quarrel well, with the others. I mean, Kim, the Kim thing is a, an amazing thing because, of course, she makes a tremendous sacrifice. Yeah, and, right, uh, so right. Yes, she may be uh, the best of them all under uh, in one way of looking at it. Well, it is. It, it's interesting. I mean, I completely agree. The, the fir, pretty much the first thing Abigail sings is about the children, and then, and I think she eventually names four of them. But then, you know, then they're just yeah, not right. discussed yeah, again. So right. there is a line later on where it's something like, uh, you know, how's the kid doing? And well, he uh, he got over he has the measles. He, yeah, but <laughs> he had, now yeah. the other kid has it, right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, so uh, Kerr also talked about three tall women, uh, uh, Domino, mm-hmm. in Forum. Uh, the baker's wife, but Sondheim, not Schwartz. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I, she, Domina, um, you know, I don't know. Uh, we see her interact with Hero very little. Mm. And um, and she's she's not a nice person. So um, uh, I, I don't know. I think living with her day to day would be a, a real tough thing. <laughs> Maybe it was, uh, I don't remember if it was Kara, but someone also mentioned uh, Margaret Johnson in The Light in the Piazza. And I and yeah. I wanted to mention yeah. her because she actually, she was on my list, but for some reason she was the only one I, I didn't get to mention. I just, we went from one person to another and I she got lost in the shuffle somehow. But that is a, you know, among the, some of the more recent shows, that's absolutely one of the greatest mother characters. Somebody was talking about The Light in the Piazza and uh, looking around for it to be uh, where they could watch it streaming online. And uh, I, I haven't seen it, but it did I think Lincoln Center Theater just had this cut this deal for, is it Broadway HD or some, one of the other services? Oh, right. I read about that. Yeah, that would be wonderful if that is one of them because I, I did manage to get a copy that someone had made when it aired originally. Yeah. And it's so wonderful with, um, it's not uh, Kelly O'Hara, unfortunately, oh, but Kelly. it's Katie Rose Clark. Yeah. Kelly, you remember her? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Katie Rose Clark really does a wonderful job with Clara and Aaron Lazar uh, is in for uh, Fabrizio, and he is wonderful in it also. And then, of course, we have 
Victoria Clark's amazing performance preserved. So, and much of the other, the rest of the original cast. All right. Uh, then we also had Mrs. Higgins, <laughs> Meg's mother, yeah. uh, who had a fantastic wedding day. Uh, the mother in the skin of our teeth, two mothers in our town, the mother in It Should Have Been You, the mother in Torchong Trilogy, the mother in Angels in America, the mother in Rent, Parthy, talking about Showboat, that's right, Parthy. <laughs> mother in Rent, wow. You know, it, it was a those... voicemail mother only, right? Yeah, I, but the thing is, you know, again, um, she does... I mean, she means well, and <laughs> I, I, I like her self-awareness in which she calls herself Witch of the West, you know, that she knows that she's bothering the kid, that the kid doesn't welcome every one of these phone calls. But um, uh, I was really going um, for mothers who were uh, good mothers. Yeah, Mother's Day is exactly. appreciation of mothers. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I don't deny these people appear in show. In fact, when I first saw Meg, um, because I got this email as well, Meg, I thought, oh, my God, does he mean Meg and a Mother's Kisses, um, played by Beatrice Arthur, um, a show that closed on the road. And uh, because she was a real terror, you know, and I, I so I, I was really going for nurturing mothers, um, mm. which is why some of these didn't show remotely occur to me. Uh, Rob Johnson in the chat room pointed out that uh, we had three mothers in rent, uh, Mark's mom, Joanne's mom and Mimi's mom. So all, right, all voicemail right. moms. All right. you know. Yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> uh, uh, so uh, George, George's mother in Sunday in the Park, uh, a mother in a tree goes and uh, tree grows in Brooklyn. Also, we had the surrogate moms of Mary Poppins, Aunt Eller, Martha, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Mrs. Lovett for Toby. <laughs> Mrs. Lovett for Toby. We talked about Lovett on her own. Sure. Uh, but sure. Mrs. and Mama sure. Morton. And, uh, yeah. The thing, of course, with Mrs. Lovett is sure. um, I, I, I'm not sure how devoted she turns out to be. I mean, she killed <laughs> that kid in the second uh, if mm. indeed she needed to. Um, mm -hmm. so I'm not sure that she, uh, she certainly, be, uh, he thinks she's a surrogate mother. Whether or not she is, is another story. Well, right. nothing's going to harm you. Not while I'm around sort of took a deep twist there. Sure. <laughs> and then Gigi's aunt. So, uh, this just, uh, uh you know, a, uh, sure. another contribution oh, of, uh, of yeah. mothers to the theater, good and bad. <laughs> So um, we also had some news this week that the uh, CBS has decided, deigned, I'm not sure what happened there, that in, instead of, you know, uh, playing the Tony Awards at the time that was uh, scheduled because of what's happening these days, they're going to replace it with a sing-along of Greece on CBS. And that has sort of... Um, not been met by cheers. So, you know, what do you think about this this concept uh, from CBS? Well, uh, several people have suggested that a much, much better idea would have been to show great moments from Tony Award telecasts of the past. Hmm. Um, Which I believe were the Olivier's did in England. I believe the Olivier's actually uh, showed uh, a retrospective show. I heard that at least. Uh, I, I won't say I know that for sure, but I did hear that. So if oh, it already it, happened. We, I think so. Look, oh, okay. All, I, all I'm saying is this: is what I heard. You know, so um, 
So they did a retrospective, and that would have been really nice. Yeah, and the, uh, you know, uh, many of those the great performances had been issued years ago on. I think it was three separate DVDs. In fact, I'm looking at them right now, called Broadway's Lost Treasures, mm -hmm. uh, which I think are all out of print now. But uh, but I have all three, <laughs> and uh, that stuff is out there. So uh, presumably, if they could have licensed some of those that would have been amazing i uh you know of course it's of course it's not going to have the size audience that an actual uh current awards show would but it just would have been so much closer to the spirit of what we're celebrating here i wonder if they'll change their minds um given the fact that um there's been so much pushback on maybe this. yeah i was wondering that occurred to me I, I was just, you know, I was looking at it glass half full that, that CBS just didn't decide to, uh, you know, not show the Tony Awards and not show anything connected with theater. Broadway was right. You know, yes. at all. To me as well. Which, I, I, you know, I've said this many a times that I, in five years, I'm pretty sure that the Tony Awards are not going to be live on CBS on, you know, a, a, an over-the-air network. It might be on CBS... Uh, on demand or something like that, but I don't think that I don't think that they'll be live on CBS in five years. Right? Mm. Yeah, many people have suggested that. Yeah. yeah. So the Olivier's were supposed to be on April fifth, and they had canceled their ceremony. Um, and uh, I'm not seeing if they showed something else in its place, but it mm -hmm. was uh, still it was um, still. Um, uh, sponsored by MasterCard, and they had they gave the awards out. Uh, and, you know, and they honored the people still, which we're still unsure because we have had no communication whatsoever from the Tony Awards about uh, what they plan to do here. So n no one really knows, you know, what's going to happen with that respect. Um. We also heard that uh, Frozen uh, will not be rejoining the Broadway ranks when Broadway reopens, whenever it reopens. And uh, uh, at first I thought that this was, uh, you know, kind of a heartless thing to do, but it, it seems as though that... Um, it seems as though that I spoke a little bit too soon that, you know, maybe Disney was making a pragmatic choice because the Broadway theater owners were sending out rent checks to everybody and and that um, certainly there's a lot of stuff in the pipeline coming from Disney um, right. and that and that Frozen wasn't doing all that well anyway uh, from the from a box office standpoint uh, and it didn't look to be a long-running hit like The Lion King or something along those lines, when they still have a lot of yeah. stuff coming. What is significant here um, was Tom Schumacher's statement that, in essence, he didn't quite put it this way, but that he's got to protect The Lion King and Aladdin mm -hmm. from the vantage point that when, whenever this starts again, and we're led to believe it's going to be March, now that um, two shows have announced that they're opening in March, um, that Tom Schumacher feels that when people start coming back to the theater, there's only going to be so much money they have to go to shows mm. and, um, <laughs> and so much inclination to go to shows that really two Disney shows are plenty. 
um, and mm-hmm. the, it, they just won't be able to um, support three. So it really came down to that. And yes, um, we should say that Frozen was not a blockbuster, but it was doing 90%, um, and in the 90 percentile, for virtually all of its run. So, um, and I know it was on TDF recently. I'm, I'm quite aware of that. But um, we really shouldn't minimize the fact that Frozen, first off, ran 825 performances, which is a very nice run. It's not great. <laughs> it was a time when it was phenomenal. But yeah, still, it was a successful show. And um, I don't think we should demean it as being less than successful, even though it was less successful than The Lion King and Aladdin. Hmm. Well, everything is relative, especially when it comes to Disney. Sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So uh, one of our listeners, David Easel, uh, emailed us and asked um, our opinion about uh, since we have seen Frozen and two other plays announced that they're not going to reopen, and I- I'd imagine that you know the the 41 Broadway theaters will not all be filled when we reopen. Uh, is this an opportunity for some other projects that were uh, off Broadway or other places? Give them an uh, an opportunity to come to Broadway. Do you think that we're going to see shows that wouldn't typically come to Broadway come to Broadway during the reopening? Is uh, what are your thoughts on that? One of my thoughts um, that was related to that. I'm not quite answering your question, but I will say this because it, it sort of is in the same ballpark. That um, <clears throat> producers have constantly said over the years, gee, I'd love to bring my show in, but there's a booking jam. You know, I yeah. can't get a theater. Mm, sure. And I don't think that's going to be a problem anymore. Now, of course, they'll go to the natural excuse. I can't raise the money because of the virus. You know, nobody um, is so sure right. that uh, a show is going to make money. Right. So the, they'll still not be producing sh- new shows, but the excuse will be different. Um, we will see that. It occurred to me what, what should happen now is that all these shows over the years that closed during previews, Senator Joe, Bobby Boland, those shows, Mm -hmm. and shows that ran one night, uh, the little Johnny Jones revival, um, anything like that. Those are the first shows that should be produced now because nobody will come to them and there'll be no problem with social distancing because there'll only be like about 50 people at each performance <laughs> and they can stagger the seats very easily. So that's the way we should get back into producing shows with, uh, with bombs. You know, so well, that's a novel solution. <laughs> yes, it is, isn't it? <laughs> like Mrs. Lovett, these things just pop into my head. Right. Okay, so t- this morning we're going to talk about title songs. So, Peter, why don't you uh, outline for the listeners what your definition of a title song is? Well, I think it's simply the title of the show. And what's really interesting is before Hello, Dolly, uh, I've done a study on this. Uh, the 10 years before Hello, Dolly, uh, 24% of the Broadway musicals had title songs. The 10 years after Hello, Dolly, 52% had title songs. Oh. So... Mm-hmm. Um, Dolly really had a great influence. And in fact, uh, the musical Sherry, which had a title song and a damn good one, um, was originally called Dinner with Sherry. And as time went on, they thought, no, you know, if we call it Sherry, then we'll get that title song. So uh, that happened. um, And when the musical version of Never on Sunday happened, 
in those days, it was important to brand a Broadway musical as something new so that people wouldn't see, think they were seeing something old. Um, and so Never on Sunday was called Ilya Darling. And they included the number Never on Sunday from the movie, in the Oscar-winning song, in the, um, in the actual show. But they also wrote an Ilya Darling title song. So title songs have been really important. And now they're not as much. Why? Because the name recognition comes from the movie in which the musical is based. So we don't have as many title songs as we used to have. Um, and I really do believe that's the reason why, that the public uh, already knows the name of the show. But this was a great way of branding way back when. Um, and uh, so most of the um, title songs from shows, uh, I'm going to start with one that um, I imagine most people don't know, and that uh, I will admit that's kind of frustrating. Um, it's from a show that ran one night, which I saw three times, called <laughs> A Broadway Musical, <laughs> called A Broadway Musical by uh, Charles Strauss and Lee Adams, um, 1978, 79, somewhere around there, and uh, played the L'Enfantine Theater. Um, started at a church on the Upper um, West Side. Uh, that was their out-of-town tryout, so to speak, the Riverside Church. And um, But it was about the producing of a Broadway musical and all the things that can go wrong when you produce a Broadway musical. And indeed, things went wrong with the show itself. But the title song is terrific. And it, it deals with... Um, the, the concept of the show is a playwright, a black playwright has written a serious play. And the producer says, no, it would make a great musical. And he explains why it would make a great musical. And all the assets of a musicals come in um, during the lyrics, you know, the sets and the lights, the terrific costumes, a Broadway musical, that type of thing. Um, and <laughs> Lee Adams wasn't above having the playwright sing at one point. It doesn't have one redeeming feature, a Broadway musical, because, um, of course, he was at odds with this concept. But anyway, I'll never forget being in um, at a party with Lee Adams, and I, I brought this up, and he was amazed that I knew the song. And what I really loved was at the end of the song, after the playwright has complained about it doesn't have one redeeming feature, the lyric concludes with, but when it works, forget the jerks who told you it wouldn't go, for there's nothing like a Broadway show. So, you know, I'm going to love that. There's a tape of um, An Evening with Charles Strauss. Um, I, it was a professionally released tape. I don't know if um, if it shows up on Amazon or eBay or whatever, but Charles actually does the song just himself at the piano. And um, so if you want to track it down, and I will admit this will be the most obscure one that I mention of any that I mentioned, but uh, still, it's a terrific song. And I, you know, I, I'm amazed it hasn't shown up in some reviews somewhere because it really is quite, quite good. Hmm. How about you, Michael? Well, speaking of Strauss and Adams, one of the ones on my list, and I guess it'll be the first one I mentioned, is Applause. It's on my list, too. Which, Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> actually, just last night, I rewatched uh, the entire TV version of it. Uh, so it, that's all fresh in my mind. And um, so many, several points to be made about that song. First of all, uh, on the cast album, you only get a fraction of it. That's right. Because what it was in the show uh, was the song itself, the song Applause, which Strauss and Adams wrote. But then there's a whole very extended song and dance sequence in the middle 
because what the the setup of the song is that um, in the show uh, there's a this producer character uh, who's sort of the equivalent of the George Sanders theater critic character in the film All About Eve, but in the show Applause he's a, a producer and it kind of makes more sense. Um, for his character in terms of his interaction with everyone else, including Eve. So anyway, he uh, he and Eve are starting to um, maybe possibly hook up on some level. And he takes her to a theater hangout after the show. Yeah, and um, well, you know, I actually I'm glad you said that because I, I was going to ask you that. I My memory is that it was specified as Joe Allen in the show, in this uh, TV version, which was actually filmed in London, mm-hmm. uh, they say, he says the Spotlight Club or something like that. I, I guess see. maybe they thought that, I don't know if it was a rights issue or if they just thought that people didn't know what Joe Allen was. Um, yeah, I'm sure Because I guess it true. was kind of what is, new at the time. Uh, let, let me interject here because I think it was so yeah. terrific. When Walter Kerr reviewed uh, Applause, he said the scene in Joe Allen's and you saw the window cards of all the flop shows. They had a few of them up there to indicate <laughs> Joe Allen because that's what Joe Allen is famous for. For those of our listeners out of town, it's a 46th Street restaurant that has window cards from shows like Kelly and Pretty Bell and what have you. And what he said was, by that time in the show, you knew that the window card for applause was never going to be on Joe Allen's wall. Isn't that terrific? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, anyway, so he, uh, so uh, this producer character, I think his name is Howard. He brings Eve to this place, and she's never been to it. And and there are all these gypsies, as they used to be known, uh, hanging out there. And they start talking with them, and one of them kind of steps out, uh, originally played by Bonnie Franklin, and kind of gives exposition about how little money they make and how they just go from show to show. And that's why they were called gypsies because they were itinerant in that way. Um, And then she starts singing the song applause and everyone joins in, but there is this extended middle section where uh, they, all of the gypsies then start to do very brief song parodies of of famous Broadway songs uh, with parody lyrics, but all about how much they have applause. So they do uh, Tradition from Fiddler. They do Hello, Dolly. They do something from Oh, Calcutta. Oh, they do a, a, a face-off between Oklahoma and Oh, Calcutta. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on one side of the stage, these guys are singing, Oh, Oklahoma, and the other on the other side, three guys are going, Oh, Calcutta, and they're taking off their clothes. <laughs> <laughs> but they don't, you know, go completely, of course. Um, and so that's a little, like a little tiny little forbidden Broadway, uh, pre-forbidden Broadway in the middle of applause. And as I said, none of that is on the cast album. None of that section's on the cast album. I, I presumably for rights issues for recording the music uh, sure. at that time. But it is in the TV version, which um, I have extremely mixed feelings about the acting, the direction and the edits and many aspects of it. But, but it is great to have it uh, as a, you know, as a historical record. And uh, it was uh, supervised uh, by, by Ron Field who directed and choreographed the original production. So I assume that uh, the choreography 
uh, and all of that is pretty much either exactly the same or very close to what had been done on Broadway. Yeah, I have to say that Laura McCall is truly terrible in the video. Um, she's mm -hmm. much – the thing you see about Merman uh, that, um, you know, she wasn't good for film because she was too big. Boy, mm -hmm. Laura McCall big in this uh, TV version. So um, um, a, a very important one to me is MAME. Um, I, I would – I think MAME is a superior production number even to Dolly um, because we have seen MAME earn what she's uh, got. She's got through this fox hunt. Uh, she was able to stay on the horse. Granted, she cheated a little, but she stayed on the horse and she won over the hearts of everybody who hated her uh, when she first walked down there simply because she came from New York City. So um, it's, an, it's an amazing number of appreciation. And also what's really wonderful, and you don't get this on the cast album, and I wish you did, um, mm -hmm. is that after you know everybody's singing and celebrating her, and we're all just carried away and just so happy for her, and she's getting married. And, she's, and suddenly in the actual production, you hear Patrick, little Patrick, come in and say, but if someday another bow comes along determined to take my place, and you feel so terrible because you forgot all about the kid. And so, I mean, there's a lot of emotion in that number. It's not just a great song, but there's a lot of emotion in that number. So um, I think it really is a terrific um, first act closer. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because I completely agree about all those positive aspects of it that you just said. But I think it's it's got huge inherent problems in the number that were in it from the beginning and uh, for some reason didn't seem to make a difference when the show was new. But now I think that um, I almost want to say that the number is almost unperformable because it's a very weird situation where, yes, um, the main point of it is to show how these these Southerners have accepted Maine uh, as, as one of them, you know. Uh, but it's also... You know, there's that that undercurrent, or more than an undercurrent, of of uh, separatism, and you know, these are people who fought a war because they wanted to be among themselves and live their own way of life. And it's um, even while celebrating name, uh, there's all this ironic kind of view of these people and just the way they talk in cliches, you make the cotton easy to pick, you give my old Minchula the kick. And then the the line <laughs> the line that almost single handedly makes the song a huge problem nowadays is uh you've given us the drive again to make the South revive again. Yes, uh, so yeah, so I think uh I wonder if it occurred to Jerry Herman or anyone else when they were writing it, that, that this was a kind of a trap um, or, or, or an inherent problem in, in the song that to, to simultaneously be celebrating MAME, which is the main point of the number, as I said, but then also this very ironic, almost satirical portrait of these Southerners and their, you know, their regressive, Miss. Well, first off, I do remember um, so many people during that period of time saying uh, people from the South. I, I, I had a lot of friends who had uh, parents um, who came from the South 
and they used to say all the time, the South uh, will rise again and point a finger. And uh, and it was really not taken very seriously. It was the type of thing that people just said as a way of rationalizing a loss. Um, it's uh, my, my friend who's a big George Bush fan, uh, the, the second Bush president, uh, always says, you wait and see. You wait and see. In time, he's going to be judged a great president because of all he did for national parks. Well, who knows? But anyway, my point is, I always judge shows by the time they're in. To me, um, saying that um, a 1966 show doesn't hold up um, here, I can't imagine that it would any more than a 1966 typewriter would hold up uh, today. And for that matter, um, whoever won, well, I know Kyle Yastrzemski won the batting championship in 1967. I don't remember mm-hmm. who won in 66. And because <laughs> Kyle Yastrzemski is now like 90 years old, we're not going to take that away from him that he won back then. What? He couldn't even hit a baseball now. Well, yeah, he couldn't hit a baseball now, but he could then. And what happened then during that period of time is what's important to me. And I always judge things by that. So as a result, none of that bothers me in MAME, and I understand where it's coming from. So, uh, and I don't, I, I really don't find that offensive, the uh, South Will Rise Again line. Um, uh, and I remember everybody being uh, pretty amused by it way back when. So anyway, you know, we've disagreed before and we will again. So anyway, um, my favorite year is a, a, a song that I think is really glorious. Yeah. And um, um, I, uh, one wonderful melody by um, Steve Flaherty and um, terrific lyrics by, by Lynn Ahrens, and um, th- this is another one that isn't that well known, and I really urge people to hear this song. What was really nice, when the York Theatre Company did it in Mufti um, some years ago, um, they used uh, the creators went back and took another look at it, and they used this as um, their opening number. It was the closing number in the show, um, but they used it as an opening number. And, you know, they had a wonderful opening number in, in 20 million people about the fact putting on a TV show for 20 million people is not an easy thing. Um, but there was something about my favorite year that really worked very, very well opening the numbers. So if you're going to listen to the CD, uh, play the last track first and then go <laughs> and start with 20 million people uh, because it really is such a nostalgic leaf. The melody is so nostalgic in the best sense of that word. So I really like that one a lot. Hmm. Michael, what's next on your list? Well, we should probably mention Oklahoma because, first of all, it's such a great number, but also a last-minute addition to that score. Mm -hmm. Um, So fascinating to look at what shows do and don't have title songs and whether they were in place uh, in the beginning or, or added at some later point, it's, it's interesting even just to look at the Rodgers and Hammerstein shows. Um, yeah, there aren't many Because about, what, about half of them have? No, I think it's less than that because, I mean, Carousel yeah. doesn't. Allegro does. Right. South Pacific Allegro doesn't. does. King and, Undr- yeah. King and I doesn't. Uh, Me and Juliet doesn't. Pipe Dream doesn't. Flower Drum Song doesn't. But Sound of Music, of course, does. Right. So, yeah, far less than half, I guess. Uh, but Oklahoma, they uh, I guess they felt that the show needed a, an 11 o'clock number. And it's uh, and then it was decided that it should be a choral number, which is absolutely right, because the whole show is basically about community, uh, regardless of what other people might say. Um, and uh, so they came up with this song with this incredible choral arrangement and then gave it the title of what 
turned out to be the title of the show as opposed to the previous title, which, you know, uh, I mean, in retrospect is not, it doesn't strike us as what would have been a good idea at all. Away we go. Yeah. Um, and there were, had been other, uh, uh, other, uh, thoughts of the title before that. I, I think, uh, um, what was it? It turned your partner, things like that. Uh, that I don't know, but you know, it's really interesting when you, uh, it never occurred to me until this moment that you mentioned the way we go in a strange sense that turned out to be a metaphor for Rogers and Hammerstein away we go. And, um, yeah. and, <laughs> you know, little did we know that this would be the first of nine shows and one movie and one TV special that they would do. Uh, cause you know, it's entirely possible that they would have just teamed up for one show. I mean, a lot of people do. Um, sure. and, and that brings me to my next title song that I think is terrific beyond belief. Uh, and again, Rogers, but with a collaborator, he didn't work with ever again. And I think, you know who I mean, and that's the title song to do I hear a waltz which I think is really quite wonderful. And I'll never forget being mm -hmm. at the Boston tryout and hearing it. Um, and it was so funny. I mean, I was, I was a young teenager and there I was um, watching them uh, sing, do I, her, um, Leona sing, do I hear a waltz? And I, after uh, she sang it, I thought, Oh, please, please let them waltz now. Well, of course they're going to waltz. But I mean, <laughs> you know, was that in my naivete, you know, I'm just getting started uh, going to shows. That, um, it, uh, it, I really thought there was a possibility they'd miss that. Yeah, well, these are pros. They do what to do. And um, But it really is quite a wonderful song. And I also should mention that I think it's one of the best cover versions of a Broadway show ever song, and that is by Edie Gourmet, a terrific recording of Do I Hear a Waltz. And... Um, so that's that's on my list of top um, title songs. Wow, I, I don't think I've ever heard the Edie Gourmet version. Thank you. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, YouTube, but I bet it's there. You know, so. Um, and I completely agree about that song. I think it's so wonderful. I I, I think it's you know we've heard time and again of the oh, difficult, yeah. very very difficult working relationship between Rogers and Sondheim, but uh, clearly sometimes. It, it, it just clicked at least on a professional level. And uh, it's so fascinating to look at that show. I, I think I agree with uh, that Peter and I are in agreement that, um, that we both feel that the show works pretty well in general and much oh, better yeah. than, oh, than yeah. it's fate. You know, mm -hmm. I, I mm -hmm. think there are only some relatively minor issues in it, but, uh, and some of the songs are less inspired than others, but that one and several others are really, really, really top drawer. And I think that even if that show had only given us that song, it would be worth it because it's so perfect for the character and and where it happens in the show. And everything just inspiration just really, really struck when they uh, when they came to writing that song and then deciding to give it. Uh, the show that title because there again the um, uh, the title of the play on which it's based mm, is mm. the time of the cuckoo. Terrible title, which, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, like really, really bad. I, I, I'm not sure if I've even read what it means. Is it a quote from something? I don't even think there's an allusion to it in the uh, musical. I don't, yeah, I don't know I don't, any illusions. So I don't, I, I don't know what it is. I've never read the play. So I, and there was a production that I missed. Um, I think at Lincoln Center, you know, about twenty years ago, 
and um, I missed it. So um, I don't know about that. But this is motivation for me to take. I do have the uh, the uh, Random House edition of, of Time of the Cuckoo. So this is motivation for me to take it down and, and read it. It's a tough show because, you know, everybody expects that this woman on her vacation is going to wind up with this man. They're going to live happily ever after. I mean, so many musicals had this type of setup where people meet and they fall in love. And yeah, and the whole point of this show is a very different point. And that is the fact that this woman is not a nice person, really. And she has an opportunity to be a nice person and she doesn't take it. And she does a terrible thing in uh, being... Um, somebody who reveals too much about something that happened. And mm. what, what, what really winds up here is that she comes away from her vacation being a better person than she was when she started it. And that's the point of this show. And that has to be a very different message than you get in most musicals where uh, the, 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 <laughs> there's a wedding at the end. You know, I mean, it's really quite nice to see something so different where a person learns something and maybe now she'll go back to the United States and we'll find somebody and be worthy of that person. Because at this moment in time, she's not really worthy of it. And that's a tough thing to do in a show. I'll grant you that. But um, it, but it does make sense on its own. It's a, it's a maverick show. But uh, anyway, whatever the case may be, whether people agree or disagree, a lot of people like that song. Uh, another obscure one that I'll do. And I wish that there wasn't the belly dancer sequence on the original cast album that interrupts it. <laughs> but a terrific song is I Had a Ball, a 1964 mm. musical. And Karen Morrow, um, who should have been one of our biggest stars, a household name, but always wound up in shows that um, she didn't do well. Um, I'm sorry, the shows didn't do well. She did um, spectacularly well because I saw her in many of them especially the grass harp. But um, Karen Morrow, this was, I think, her Broadway debut. She had been in the off-Broadway Boys from Syracuse, where she was terrific, too. But um, it's a song that the lyrics are very strange, and I'm not sure they really make sense, so you really understand what's going on. But the melody is wonderful, and she really sells the song. So um, track down this cast album, which is very bizarre in many um, respects, though there is a song about Freud that has so many... Uh, variations on the word Freud that it's um, <laughs> worth hearing for its own sake. But believe me, um, I Had a Ball is really a, a great, great number, a true showstopper. One of our listeners in the uh, chat room is Debbie Schrager, and and, uh, and Debbie also brings up uh, a, a few that I want to get your take on. Uh, Anything Goes, 42nd Street, sure. Sound of Music? Sure. <laughs> no argument there. Wonderful songs. And the uh, and, and the Sondheim, <laughs> Sondheim seems to have uh, many many songs. The Sunday in the Park Company, Merrily Sweeney, Anyone Could Whistle, uh, a number of these mm. different ones that were all brought up. Uh, uh, Sondheim seemed to have a proclivity to uh, have a title song in all of his shows. Or... Yeah, you know, I'm not sure I ever actually thought of it in those terms. And it's interesting that, that he seems to have a higher percentage than Rodgers and Hammerstein. Um, you might think of a title song as maybe more of an older convention. Uh, but, you know, obviously it doesn't have to be. Hmm. Oh, I don't know if there are so many. There's no funny thing. Uh, there's no little night music. There's no follies. Um, there's no Pacific overtures. So, and Sweeney Todd really doesn't count because there's no song called Sweeney Todd. There's the ballad of Sweeney Todd, but um, uh, I guess, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, 
But that's a real tricky thing. I remember writing a column on this once, and I said, um, you know, I thought Baby was a terrific uh, title song. And somebody wrote it and said, that's not the name of that song. The name of that song is actually Baby, Baby, Baby. And it is, you know, so um, so if we're going to really stick by the rules here, um, you know, it's, uh, I'll tell you uh, on a sentimental level, I think it's a terrific song anyway, but on a sentimental level, I will never forget on the 20th century. Um, it's a great oh, production God. number, it's a terrific song. But for me personally, I'll get very personal here. I had just moved to New York. Um, um, I, I, I was going through a divorce um, and um, I didn't have a wife anymore. My son wasn't living with me anymore. I didn't own a house anymore. I didn't have a job anymore. And I'm telling you, that show was so important to me because I still had that. I still had musicals. And it really was such a consolation to me watching that show. So uh, that title number, when, it, when the porters started tap dancing across the stage, that's when I really lost it and found it. Um, it took me a long time to realize that's why I responded so much to it because I had experienced so much loss in my life, but, but I still had that. And that was terrific. Hmm. Well, that's wonderful. And that, that actually maybe leads me to the sound of music, which is such a wonderful title because it's, it might sound generic. <laughs> uh, and I guess in a way it yeah. is, but it's yeah. so yeah beautiful as as telling us what the theme the overall theme of the show is i mean first of all maria uses music as a way to bond with the children uh which is something that was not a part of their lives beforehand and so that's uh, a tremendous element of the show in that sense and then uh ultimately well i mean it starts out with um Maria, you know, in this beautiful setting in the mountains and just by herself and talking about the music of nature and and uh, that all those beautiful images in that song. But then at the end of the show, uh, you know, the uh, Von Trapps, uh, first of all, they're they're almost uh, they're trying to escape and uh, and it looks like that they might not be able to sing at this festival, but the, one of the Nazis says nothing in Germany has changed. There will still be music. Uh, you know, uh, nothing in Austria has changed. Excuse me. Uh, there will still be music, you know, in the third Reich. Um, and then they're, they're forced, uh, you know, under, under guard to, to, to continue to the festival and, and then sing, uh, do their, their, their numbers there, including Edelweiss and So Long Farewell. But also then we know from history that, you know, I hate to even say it, but the Nazis wound up using music as a weapon, uh, uh, first of all, in banning uh, anything that was written by anyone who was Jewish. And then so tragically using the music of Wagner in the concentration camps, so when you look at all that in, in context, The Sound of Music is, is such a perfect, perfect title for that show. Uh, and, and a much better title than the original one. Do you know what the original one was? The Singing I'm, Heart. Gee, yeah, you know? <laughs> I'm not sure I knew that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, not nearly as good as The Sound of Music. You're right, because that, that is... Uh, the certain driving force in the show. So um, it really is a terrific one. 
Uh, one that many may not have heard, a real bouncy, happy-go-lucky uh, melody and a terrific lyric, is Smile. I wish that the show um, mm. had officially gotten recorded. There is um, um, a, a recording with a synthesizer that cast it after the show closed, after far too few performances as far as I'm concerned. I thought Smile was a terrific musical, and this is a great bouncy production. I'm a Marvin Hamlish, of course, did suffer terribly after um, their playing our song. And this is one of the examples of where he did, um, because I, I thought it was a wonderful thing. So many people have said to me, Smile didn't have the bite the movie has. I watched that movie, and I do not see what they're talking about. But anyway, hmm. whatever the case may be, if you can find a recording of Smile, there are a few here and there. Uh, it's not nearly as good as on this um, album that I'm talking about, if you can even call it an album. But um, it's it's a fond memory. And what it is, is um, at the uh, beauty pageant. Um, that's where the song is done. It's it's a production number, and we have people we're rooting for, and um, and our heroine, the person we really want to see win, has something bad happen to her. Her umbrella does not open where everybody else. They all come on. They open their umbrellas in time to music, and hers doesn't work. And uh, she runs off stage, and the director says, "No, go back. They noticed you," and um, and every person is supposed to say i smile because you know and they give a reason because it never rains in california you know things like that and uh, and she says because oh, who needs an umbrella in sunny california and it's so wonderful and the director off stage says they learn fast <laughs> <laughs> so um it's a terrific song and uh, i hope some of you can find it on youtube or, or hear it if you've never heard it before because it's really quite wonderful oh you know one that popped into my head uh just now is kiss me kate which is an interesting case because it's the title of a, a song from the show within the show. Mm. And we first hear it, a version of it, as the finale of Act One of Kiss Me Kate. <laughs> well, Kiss Me yeah, Kate is Amy. the title. Kiss Me Kate is the title both of the Cole Porter musical and the title of the show within the show. So it gets it a little is. confusing to even talk about it, I, I right? Think I think it's still called The Taming of the Shrew. I think it still is. Um, oh wait, anyway. uh, did I did I screw that up? I oh. I think so. I think it's still called. In fact, the last revival, I can still see the scrim that said the Taming of the Shrew. It didn't say the Taming of the Shrew colon the musical, but um, and there's <laughs> always been such consternation about are we really seeing a real musical or are we seeing simply the play and the songs of <laughs> the songs aren't really in the the play. It's it it is confusing there. But anyway. Um, but yes, um, certainly Kiss Me Kate is uh, a, a very jaunty song. I'll certainly agree with that. Um, um, well, I, yeah, that, that's interesting that I, I may have just messed that up. Uh, I'll have to check, but I think you're probably right. Uh, but it's uh, so at the, at the end of the first act of the Cole Porter musical, which is also a scene from the show within the show, and I guess it's the end of the first act of the show within the show as well, Kiss Me Kate is sung as a, pr a production number during which uh, everything kind of falls apart. And uh, Lily is is uh, tremendously upset because of what's going on off stage. And it ends with uh, Fred spanking her, putting her over 
his knee and spanking her on stage, which, uh, you know, it's presented a problem for, I guess, some people, some modern audiences. Um, but then at the end of act two, we, we hear a little sli- snippet of kiss me Kate again. Uh, and at that point, everything is worked out and everyone's happy. So then we hear it as a, you know, as a very joyous number. And I think that was a, a wonderful little device that Cole Porter used. I was just re-listening. Uh, I think I, emailed you guys i was listening to our um interview with patricia morrison from um several years ago when she was a mere 98 years old (laughs) and it's just so great to hear to listen to that again i had forgotten uh, not completely forgotten but i was reminded of how uh she was still so sharp at that point and seemed to have pretty much total recall of everything and and telling us these stories of, of, you know, of things that happened uh, with that show in 1948 or nine. Uh, I always screw that up as well. Um, yeah, well, just one really understand why, because it was December 30th, 1948. That's why. Yeah. Right. And the, and the album I think was recorded uh, right after the new year. So uh, sure. the album has a 1949 date on it, but yeah. Um, so that's a, an interesting, and it's uh, Peter. Maybe you've already done this. Have you compiled a list of shows that have title songs that are from the show within the show? Um, does the Drowsy Chaperone have a song of that title? I don't think so. But do you mean something like, for example, in the opening song of Paint Your Wagon, "I Am on My Way"? They use the lyric "Paint Your Wagon." Is that the type of thing you're talking about? No. All right. <laughs> no, no, I meant kiss like kiss me Kate. Kiss me Kate is a is a song from the show within the show and it's also uh-huh. the title of the show itself. Uh-huh. Uh the Drowsy Chaperone there there may not be a song with that title but that is the that is also the title of the show within the show. So mm-hmm. that's close, I guess. Yeah, uh, me and Juliet um uh, I think is uh, the title of the show within the show. Right. Uh, as, right. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it yeah. is. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's uh, really quite true. Um, you know, um, there's that famous story about all these people wanted to do ragtime and everybody submitted a cassette. Hmm, um, yeah. And I think Terrence McNally told me they were all alphabetized and was went from A to K. So that's a lot of people submitting. I could be wrong about that, but I think that's what he told me. And anyway, I can really understand why <laughs> Steve Flaherty and Lynn Aaron's got the job from that title song of Ragtime. If that's what was on the tape, uh, the opening song, and I bet it was, uh, it may not be exactly the song we know today. They may have uh, certainly tweaked it here and there or enhanced it, but still one can understand from that song why they got the job. Oh, and um, I almost forgot this, but uh, we we just released very, very recently is a cast album of the recent london production of rags yes and i I think i think peter i think you just mentioned that song in one of our very recent podcasts but you might want to i thought you might want to readdress that because of this new recording yeah i don't have it yet so um i can't say anything about the recording but rags is a very good song of course that's a marvelous score just wonderful i'm sorry we you know nothing against um the woman who did do the recording, but I'm really sorry that Teresa Stratus didn't do it. I didn't see Rags. I was out of town when it happened. Uh, I was in California doing a story, so I missed. I mean, only you know uh, there were previews, but it only ran a few nights. And um, 
So, but everybody says Teresa Stratus was really amazing. I remember one time when I was making a list of the 50 great performers in musical theater and my late great friend, David Wolf said, Teresa Stratus. I said, David, she only did one show. And he said, if you saw her, you'd put her on the list. So, wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So did you see her, Michael? No, no, I didn't see the show at all. Have you, uh, did you ever see her, since you're an opera fan, did you ever see her um, in an opera? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, yes. Uh, yes, I saw her several times at the Met. She, um, uh, I saw her in Turandot and uh, uh, a few other things. So one of her hugest successes was Il Tritico, which is three different uh, operas, three one-act operas by Puccini performed in, in uh, a double bill. And uh, in one, uh, she plays a nun who um, who has a secret, and the secret is that she uh, had a child once, and then uh, that turns out to she gets some very, very, very bad news about the child. Uh, and then in another one of the operas, she plays an unfaithful wife who's sleeping uh, with uh, a man who works for her and her husband and then third one she plays a virginal uh little renaissance maiden so she really had a chance to um to kind of go to go to town in that and 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 show her gifts as both an actress and a singer mm. let me go on a tangent for a second here uh so Rags, the London uh, cast recording that uh, Michael just mentioned, is available at Ghostlight Records for nine dollars and ninety nine cents, and it has got twenty eight tracks on it. Have you ever thought of anything else in life that has gotten less expensive as we go on? I mean, uh, cast albums. I, I remember spending fifty, sixty, eighty dollars on uh, the Les Misérables. Uh, sim- complete symphonic cast recording, things like that. This is an amazing deal for $10, the Reg's uh, London cast and recording. As I always say, if you ever go to a recording session of a cast album, you will really feel whatever you have to pay for them, it's really worth it. It's amazing, just amazing, to see how much work goes into the recording of a cast album. And um, it really would make you uh, feel not bad at all, no matter what you pay for an album. Wow. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I've been to a couple of them. And, um, you know, uh, one of the things Patricia Morrison mentioned in passing when we were t- talking with her, and I, 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 it's possible that she just doesn't remember properly, but I think sure. this might have been true. She said they used to go to the studio after the performance to do some of the recordings. Wow. wow. <laughs> <laughs> so um you know i mean i i can't imagine they they probably did pieces uh rather than do the whole thing in these marathons like they did in later years as as preserved in the amazing company original cast album documentary uh but uh i i suppose a lot of the methods and and practices have changed over the years as far as cast album recordings sure sure yeah um uh, another one that's really quite nice is uh, On a Clear Day You Can See Forever. Um, mm. And uh, I will concede that that may not be the title. It might, the title might be On a Clear Day, but I think it is the entire title. I'll have to check on the sheet music and see, which is always the best way to find out what a song is actually titled. But a really pretty melody. And speaking of covers, since I mentioned Edie Gourmet doing such a terrific job with Do I Hear a Waltz, 
Let me also mention Robert Goulet uh, doing a terrific job with On a Clear Day You Can See Forever. I think that may very well be the um, finest male cover of uh, a show song that I've ever heard. Hmm. Michael, uh, any other show um, title songs? You know, actually, that uh, I've gone through my list. I'm sure there are many, many. Sure, others. absolutely. Let me, since Michael mentioned uh, one that was written out of town, I'll mention one that was written out of town too. That um, that became a title song. It, 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 um, the show didn't have a title song until Mari Eston came into Grand Hotel. And right, uh, Grand Hotel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A, a terrific song in a minor key that indicates, you know, this is going to be a very different type of musical, which indeed it was. Um, and um, really set that ominous tone, and the right person sang it, the doctor who uh, really had such um, a a negative attitude, for good reason, um, at life. So very different from Take Me Along, a jaunty song, a terrific, um, terrific, terrific um, showstopper. But the irony was, if you uh, look at pictures of the actual production of Take Me Along, you see that it was an in-one. For those who don't know that term, that's when they used to have scrims come down and there was only a tiny bit of the front part of the stage. Mm-hmm. Um, people would sing in front of the scrim so the scenery could be changed behind. Um, and the thing is, that's what they needed that song for, uh, just right. to kill time to do scenery. And yet it turned out to be a wonderful song. I will admit that I was disappointed um, the song has always been sullied for me because it became Nixon's campaign song instead of Take Me Along, it's Nixon's The One. But aside from that, it, we can't uh, justify that. It's a terrific song. You know, maybe we should just mention uh, just uh, as a group uh, the the interesting case where uh, a show did not have a title song. And then when they made the movie, a title song was written. And the two that leap immediately to my mind are Bye Bye Birdie and Funny Girl. Although Funny Girl is a little complicated because um, <laughs> Isn't it? I, if I have this right, there was a song called Funny Girl that had been written and actually mm-hmm. recorded by Barbara mm-hmm. Streisand. Terrific I'm not song. sure if that was ever, ever in the show or was just... I've heard everything from it was never in the show that she did it for one performance. And she said, look, I'm doing plenty. Leave me alone. Um, I have a feeling it was just um, use the term that the um, this is not my term. This is the um, industry's term an exploitation record. In other Mm. words, just to get there and um, just get the title out there, because indeed, um, with the Hello, Dolly thing going on there. Um, by the time Funny Girl opened on Broadway, Hello, Dolly was being heard by that Louis Armstrong recording. And I do know that Rage Stark said, look, we don't have a title song. Can't you do something? But I don't know if it ever got into the show. I don't think it did. Yeah, I don't think so either. But uh, then anyway, regardless, when it came time for the movie, uh, Julie Stein and Bob Merrill wrote a new uh, title song, which is very, very different, much very different. And, comes in a different place, and uh, yeah. I believe, and it's a, it's a very sad song, and yeah. uh, and right. um, and and they must have been happy at least to have that opportunity because I know that Stein was very vocal, very very vocal about how unhappy he was that they decided to put some actual old songs into the movie. Oh, yeah. uh, including uh, I'd Rather Be Blue, but also most famously My Man. My Man, yeah. Mm. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of our listeners have added in uh, Beauty and the Beast. Um, oh, yeah, that's mm-hmm. very nice. Beauty and the Beast. Beautiful song. Uh, and... Greece doesn't have a title song, does it? It's called well, something again, else. Again, the movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Another example, yeah. So, yeah, it's uh that's just a, a few of them and listeners uh if you have uh thoughts about other songs that we may have missed, uh email us or hit us up online on Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio. Oh, we missed them. And we will uh, we'll <laughs> talk about them. Um, before we wrap up, we had a, one more question that uh, is uh, we haven't. I don't think that we've addressed here before. But um, Michael and Peter, what uh, Amy Lai has asked us in the chat room, what 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 would it take for each of you on a personal level to feel comfortable to go back to the theater? Uh, I intend to go back whenever they reopen. Um, I am going to take a chance, and I know it's a big one, um, but nevertheless, uh, I want to be supportive. So whenever there, in fact, um, my girlfriend Linda was saying the other day, we really should go to Barrington Stage because they're going to do a show um, this summer. And uh, (laughs) funny, uh, she was saying, at this point, I will go see anything. I mean, anything. (laughs) And I said to her, will she leave it intermission? (laughs) <laughs> Good for you. Uh, so anyway, I said, well, um, the Shakespeare Theater of New Jersey saved their opening August 5th. She said, oh, great. Um, I said, they're doing Waiting for Godot. She says, I'm not going. So I mean, <laughs> that was short. There are limits. <laughs> yeah, right. There are limits. <laughs> oh, that's great. Michael, how about you We're going back to Broadway or off-Broadway? I, I think my feelings are quite close to Peter's. Uh, you know, it's so difficult to to decide what is safe and what isn't. And uh, I guess they'll never be completely safe again until there's a mm. vaccine. But but um, but uh, you know, uh, I, I, I it does look like there will be no reopening unless uh, without major, major precautions. And so whatever they turn out to be, you know, if it's masks plus um, lots of space between patrons, uh, et cetera, then, then that's what we'll do. But of course, this situation of the people on stage as well, which is, uh, you know, may, may, may be over and above everything else. We, we have to keep remembering that. Um, uh, so we see how we do with that. Barrington stage uh, uh, sound, has what sounds like, you know, a really ingenious solution for the time being, because they're only doing one person shows, mm-hmm. one of which um, happens to be a very good, a very good play. Uh, so, uh, so it, it's, you're not losing anything in terms of quality and that's Harry Clark, Hmm. Um, which was done off by, by Billy Crudup. I'm not sure. Have they announced who's doing it up at Barrington? Not that I know of. No, no I don't think so. Yeah. But I know uh, then, uh, I think they've only announced like three things and they're all one person shows, but another one is Marilyn May, who of course is one of my all time favorites. And I've seen many times. So I may see if I can um, possibly figure out how to go to that. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so. and when it happens, it will be the happy time, which is another wonderful title song. Anyway, <laughs> Kendra Nibs' song "A Waltz" uh, and a very yeah. nice one to open the show. 
Ready for uh, trivia? I am uh, ready for trivia, but before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, you'll be able to uh, download it and listen to it. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us, TuneIn plays us, Stitcher plays us, Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can listen to Broadway radios, uh, you can listen to finer podcasts, you can listen to Broadway radio. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, can be found in the show notes of Broadway radio as well. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Well, last week's trivia question really drove people crazy. Um, so many people wrote me and said, it just, it, it, it just can't be. There's no answer to this question. Because the question was, what show makes reference to Aida, Call Me Madam, Gentlemen for Blondes, Guys and Dolls, The King and I, and South Pacific? And people said, well, obviously, that's got to be a show after 2000, because Aida opened in 2000. And it's so <laughs> impossible that any show after 2000 would mention these shows from the 40s and 50s. I mean, it's just too bizarre. Yes, well, you all fell into my trap because the <laughs> Aida I was mentioning, which Michael Portantier got immediately, by the way, I have to point out, the <laughs> moment I asked the question, we were off the air last week, Michael said, you mean Aida the opera, don't you? Yes, I did. Because Two <laughs> on the Isle, a 1951 review in its opening song, had Comden and Green condensed Call Me Madam, Guys and Dolls, The King and I, Gentlemen for a Blondes, uh, into three-line summaries. In another song, if a woman groused that her beau hadn't taken her to South Pacific, to rhyme with mm -hmm. if. And in yet another song, Catch Our Act at the Met, the character Aida in the opera of the same name is mentioned. So it wasn't the Disney musical I was referencing. So only three people got it. And that was, um, guess who? Tony Janicki was back on top, <laughs> finishing third the week before, followed by Robert Lobiondo and Brigadude. This week... A simple spoken line in the first scene of a famous musical was the impetus for the show's composer lyricist to write an entire song for the film version. What's the song and the film? Okay, if you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye.